Welcome to Digital Yom, a podcast about living a symbolic life in a technological age. Man cannot stand a meaningless life. I'm Jason Smith, Jungian analyst and author of Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life. And in this episode, we talk about happiness and discover why Jung believed it was better for us not to pursue it. It's the human soul. That's the buried treasure. Of course, it is understandable that we seek happiness and avoid unlucky and disagreeable chances, despite the fact that reason teaches us that such an attitude is not reasonable because it defeats its own ends. The more you deliberately seek happiness, the more sure you are not to find it. It is therefore far better to take things as they come along with patience and equanimity. After all, perhaps once in a while there will be something good, lucky, or enjoyable for you in fortune's bag of relevant and irrelevant gifts. Carl Jung called happiness the most elusive of intangibles. Though he recognized that the pursuit of happiness was a natural and understandable human urge, it was, he believed, ultimately self-defeating. As we hear from him in our opening quote, the more you deliberately seek happiness, the more sure you are not to find it. This is not to say that Jung did not believe in the possibility of happiness. He did. He simply was not very optimistic about our ability to produce it through our own efforts. In an interview that he gave on the occasion of his 85th birthday, Jung lists what he sees as five factors that contribute to happiness. And they're these. Good physical and mental health, good personal and intimate relations, such as those of marriage, the family, and friendships, the faculty for perceiving beauty in art and nature, reasonable standards of living and satisfactory work, and finally, a philosophical or religious point of view capable of coping successfully with the vicissitudes of life. And as we can see, Jung recognizes that happiness does not just coincide with external factors, such as physical health, 
satisfactory relationships, and a reasonable financial situation, as important as these unquestionably are. His list also includes those much less tangible and therefore more neglected needs of the soul as well, a sensitivity to beauty in art and nature, and a religious or philosophical framework to give coherence and meaning to life. But Jung also recognizes that we're not dealing here with a matter of a simple mathematical equation, right? That adding all these factors together will necessarily lead to happiness. And so we shouldn't be deceived into interpreting this list as Jung's formula for happiness. Well, it, it, it's certainly valuable, even essential to cultivate these aspects of life, it's important to acknowledge that despite the fact that we might be in possession of a majority of these factors in our lives, or even, frankly, if we're lucky enough to possess all of them, that this does not automatically translate into the experience of happiness. There's a spontaneity to happiness that forever evades our will. It's a common experience that even when we get what we think we want, it can leave us feeling flat or disappointed. We might even feel pleased, but pleasure does not always tip over into happiness. Try as we might to identify the roots of happiness, there is a variable to the experience that can only be described as transcendent. Like the spirit, it blows where it chooses, and we do not know from whence it comes or where it goes. As Jung states, nobody can achieve happiness through preconceived ideas. One should rather call it a gift of the gods. It comes and goes, and what has made you happy once does not necessarily do so at another time. Happiness, then, is truly most elusive. And this is not the only difficulty connected with it. The knowledge and experience of happiness, just like everything else, requires contrast if we're ever to know it at all. In what is probably the most famous quote to come out of that interview that I mentioned earlier, Jung makes this declaration. One thing is certain, he says. There are as many nights as days, and the one is just as long as the other in the year's course. Even a happy life cannot be without a measure of darkness. And the word happy would lose its meaning if it were not balanced by sadness. And what that means, of course, is that if we are to invite happiness into our lives, we must also make way for its opposite, unhappiness. And this, honestly, 
complicates things. Not only does it complicate the pursuit of happiness, making it less of a straightforward matter, it complicates unhappiness as well, because it means that those things that we subjectively experience as bad or wrong aren't always, in the long run, detrimental to our well-being. Now, obviously, we can't take this too far and make an absolute out of this idea, but it does give us a glimpse of that wisdom, known, for instance, in Taoism, and reflected in this verse from the Tao Te Ching. All the world knows beauty, but if that becomes beautiful, this becomes ugly. All the world knows good, but if that becomes good, this becomes bad. This same theme, as it turns out, can also be found running through Madeleine Lengel's science fiction classic, A Wrinkle in Time, a scene of which I want to share with you here. In this scene that I'm going to read, two of the main characters, Meg and Calvin, are being led by Meg's younger brother, Charles Wallace, to go see it, the controlling mind of the planet Kamazot by whom he's been possessed. He's lecturing the other two on the superiority of Kamazots over their own confused and unhappy home planet of Earth. And the scene goes like this. Charles Wallace's strange, monotonous voice ground against her ears. Meg, you're supposed to have some mind. Why do you think we have wars at home? Why do you think people get confused and unhappy? Because they all live their own separate individual lives. I've been trying to explain to you in the simplest possible way that on Kamazots, individuals have been done away with. Kamazots is one mind. It's it. And that's why everybody's so happy and efficient. That's what old witches like Mrs. Whatsit don't want to have happen at home. She's not a witch, Meg interrupted. No? No, Calvin said. You know she's not. You know that's just their game, their way, maybe, of laughing in the dark. In the dark is correct, Charles continued. They want us to go on being confused instead of properly organized. Meg shook her head violently. No, she shouted. I know our world isn't perfect, Charles, but it's better than this. This isn't the only alternative. It can't be. Nobody suffers here, Charles intoned. Nobody is ever unhappy. But nobody's ever happy either, Meg said earnestly. Maybe if you aren't unhappy sometimes, you don't know how to be happy.
one of the challenging things that we need to realize about happiness, I think, is that it's a paradox. It's not through the elimination of what is difficult and unpleasant or in making ourselves invulnerable to sadness and hurt that we come to experience its glow. It's in the inclusion of the difficult, the acceptance of the unpleasant, the willingness to feel our vulnerability. Maybe if you aren't unhappy sometimes, says Meg in A Wrinkle in Time, you don't know how to be happy. Or, as Jung puts it, the word happy would lose its meaning if it were not balanced by sadness. The balance of the happy and the sad, however, does not necessarily come in the form of an alternation, first one, then the other. In some of life's most beautiful moments, they exist side by side, revealing and amplifying each other. Parents, for example, often experience the simultaneous presence of both the bitter and the sweet watching their young children develop. With the joy of each new stage of growth, they may be painfully aware that the previous stage and the version of the child who belonged to it is being left behind, never to return. In such moments of recognition, joy and grief commingle. This experience of the double-edged character of happiness is beautifully expressed by Virginia Woolf in her famous work, A Room of One's Own. The beauty of the world, she writes, which is so soon to perish, has two edges, one of laughter, one of anguish, cutting the heart asunder. This is not a truth that sits easy with us today. We tend to be deaf to it. We refuse to let go of the illusion that we can discover a way through the world in which we can avoid the cutting of the heart asunder. And so we're always prone to that great temptation that comes with the quest for happiness, the desire to end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. In a wrinkle in time, the enemy of happiness, at least as it's conceived by the sinister it, is difference and diversity. And these, in fact, are indeed the inevitable consequence of a world of separate and unique individuals. And it can certainly produce, as it suggests, confusion, even at times unhappiness. Our differences mean that we will inevitably feel the tension between our responsibility to actualize, in the words of Abraham Joshua Heschel, the quiet eminence of our being, 
and our responsibility to the mutual care and concern for each other. The tension between the needs of the self and the needs of the other can be very painful, and it's not easily resolved. The solution that it offers is a world without individuals, a monotonous world prizing only efficiency. But as Meg rightly points out, the lack of unhappiness is not the same as the presence of happiness. For Jung, one of the great enemies to happiness is just the kind of monotony that the planet of Kamazat sets up as a virtue. No good health, he says, no favorable financial conditions, no untroubled family relations can protect you, for instance, against unspeakable boredom. A boredom which might make you welcome even the change of circumstances brought about by a not-too-severe illness. So what's the right way through all of this muddle? Is there a way to be happy? Ultimately, according to Jung, that is the wrong question to ask. In 1950, Jung received a letter from a woman in California, apparently asking for advice on how to be happy. His response boils down to this. Stop trying. And this is what he writes. Dear Miss Hardy, It is, of course, a somewhat hopeless task to advise an unknown person of her course of life across the width of the ocean. I only can tell you one thing, that you should not set out to seek happiness for yourself. This would be a straight way to unhappiness. You better ask where and how you could be useful to whom. Happiness is not a thing one seeks. It comes to you as a reward for efforts. Yours sincerely, C.G. Jung. Where and how can you be useful to whom? That is the question. And that is probably a good takeaway for this episode. In A Wrinkle in Time, Meg is the champion for the dignity of the individual, one of the central themes of the novel. This is an idea, of course, that is also central to Jung's concept of individuation, which, as I've pointed out before on this podcast, is not the same as individualism. At the risk of oversimplifying, we could say that individualism is concerned with the question of what serves me. Well, the question of individuation is what do I serve? The pursuit of happiness in and for itself puts the focus merely on ourselves and the state of our own 
private inner life. The shadow side of inner work is that it can tend toward a kind of narcissism, making the spiritual life into just another consumer product we seek out for our own private enjoyment. We fall into this error, says Jung, because we live now in a civilization that has forgotten that man's life should be sacrificial, that is, offered up to an idea greater than oneself. Purpose, then, is the goal, not happiness. Our focus, Jung is saying, should be on what we give, not on what we get. But this doesn't mean that we have to give up the idea of being happy. The point is not a life devoid of pleasure and satisfaction. It's simply, as we noted earlier, that happiness cannot be manufactured. It comes to you, Jung writes in his letter, as a reward for efforts. Jung's ideas about what it means to be happy can sound almost countercultural in our world of instant gratification and easy pleasures. But he's not alone in holding this particular point of view. And I want to close here with two quotes that closely echo what we've heard from Jung. The first comes from Viktor Frankl, who believed that the central motivation of human life was the will to meaning. For Frankel, when we stop worrying about being happy and give ourselves to a meaningful purpose, then happiness ensues. And so he says this, Again and again, I therefore admonish my students in both Europe and in America, don't aim at success. The more you aim at it and make it a target, the more you are going to miss it. For success, like happiness, cannot be pursued. It must ensue. And it only does so as the unintended side effect of one's personal dedication to a cause greater than oneself, or as the byproduct of one's surrender to a person other than oneself. Happiness must happen. And the same holds for success. You have to let it happen by not caring about it. And the second quote, and the final word here, goes to the artist Georgia O'Keeffe, who is reported to have made exactly the same point about the value of purpose, which she calls interest over happiness. And she says this, I think it's so foolish for people to want to be happy. Happy is so momentary. You're happy for an instant, and then you start thinking again. Interest is the most important thing in life. Happiness is temporary, but interest is continuous. Mm -hmm.
until next time. You'll find information in the show notes for all the sources used in this week's episode, as well as links to connect with me on social media. Let's make this a conversation. If you have any comments or questions about anything you heard in this episode, or that you'd like me to address in a future episode, send them to me on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, if you want a deeper dive into the kind of material explored on this podcast, please check out my book, Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life, available from Chiron Publications. Thanks for listening, and take good